Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 5th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The anti-fraud statutes that took effect in January 2017 were designed to prevent convicted medical providers from continuing to file lien claims and profiting from fraud. Using this new law, an administrative law judge has dismissed liens valued at $18 million filed by convicted medical provider Michael E. Berry, bringing to a close one of the earliest cases aimed at combating fraud in the California workers' comp system. The DWC suspended chiropractor Barry from participating in California's workers' comp system after he pled guilty in 2016 to federal conspiracy charges and admitted to receiving over $206,000 in illegal kickbacks for referring dozens of patients for spinal surgeries and other medical services to Pacific Hospital of Long Beach and its related entities. The San Clemente chiropractor challenged his suspension in court and pursued collection of more than $18 million in liens that he had filed in 944 individual workers' comp cases. An appeals court denied Barry's writ in 2018 and upheld the anti-fraud legislation that led to his suspension, sending the matter back to, of the liens back to the WCAB for adjudication. Administrative Law Judge Alan Skelly held several hearings in Anaheim in which the lien claimants, insurance carriers, and members of the DIR Anti-Fraud Unit were represented by counsel. Barry contested discovery related to his 944 liens, but he then filed a notice of withdrawal with prejudice of liens of TriStar Medical Group, Jojasso Management Incorporated, Michael E. Berry Chiropractic Corporation, and Michael E. Berry, D.C. Judge Skelly accepted the notice and issued the order dismissing the liens. Berry was one of many chiropractors, physicians, and others who received lucrative kickbacks for each lumbar surgery and cervical fusion surgery referred to the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. During the last eight years of the scheme, the hospital submitted more than $580 million in fraudulent bills. Workers' compensation reforms that went into effect in January 2017 required the DWC to suspend certain medical providers from participating in the work comp system, including those who are convicted of a felony or misdemeanor involving fraud or abuse of any patient the Medi-Cal or Medicare programs, or the workers' compensation system itself. Labor Code Section 139.21 provides for a hearing process regarding the suspension and a special lien adjudication procedure to address pending liens of those providers. A new WCAB panel decision requires an employer to pay temporary disability benefits if modified work is not actually provided to a worker due to the COVID stay-at-home restrictions. Here's what happened in the case of Corona versus California Walls Incorporated, DBA Crown Industrial Operators. 
Salvador Corona was a warehouse worker who injured his knees on the job in February 2020. He was placed on modified work and did in fact return to work. But on March 16, 2020, the employer sent all employees home due to the state and local emergency orders related to COVID-19. Corona did not work from March 17 through May 10 and did not receive any state or federal COVID-19 related benefits. There was no dispute that the employer did not offer modified or alternative work for this period and that his condition was not yet permanent and stationary and that he was available to work. Applicants sought temporary disability indemnity from the defendant due to the employer not offering modified work during the period of time when he was under the stay-at-home order. The employer and the defendant carrier denied those benefits due to COVID-19. But the work comp judge awarded the TD benefits and a petition for reconsideration was denied in the new panel decision. The employer contended that its obligation to pay temporary disability ended when the applicant returned to work with modified duties and that applicant's inability to work was caused by the COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders and not the industrial injury. Here, applicant's termination from employment was not for cause or due to his own misconduct, but instead was due to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders. As a result, the employer has not met its burden to show that it is released from paying temporary disability benefits during the period in question. The fact that it was impossible to offer modified duties because of the COVID-19 orders was inconsequential. An employer's inability to accommodate a temporarily disabled employee's work restrictions does not release it from its obligation to pay temporary disability benefits. Labor Code Section 3202 requires the courts to view the Workers' Compensation Act from the standpoint of the injured worker with the objective of securing the maximum benefits to which he or she is entitled. The employer is not able to release itself from paying temporary disability benefits because of its inability to provide modified work because of the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders. The recent settlement by the Department of Justice with Wheeling Hospital in West Virginia for $50 million is yet another example of a continuation of the practice of hospitals overpaying physicians because they are able to refer patients to their hospitals. There have been numerous other settlements over the years, with Beaumont Hospital in Michigan being fined $85 million, Kalispell Regional Healthcare in Montana being fined $24 million, Broward Health in Florida being fined $70 million, and Adventist Health in Florida being fined $119 million, just to name a few. At Willing Hospital, two radiation oncologists and one OBGYN were paid $1.2 million yearly. A cardiologist received $780,000 a year, but only worked three quarters of the year. And especially egregious was a pain doctor who was paid $1.5 million a year. 
Back in 2019, the Department of Justice announced it had reached a settlement here in California with Sutter Health and Sacramento Cardiovascular Surgeons Medical Group to resolve allegations of violations of the Physician's Self-Referral Law, commonly known as the Stark Law. Sutter is a California-based health services provider, and Sac Cardio is a Sacramento-based practice group of three cardiovascular surgeons. The total settlement in that case in excess of $46 million includes $30.5 million from Sutter to resolve allegations of an improper financial relationship specific to compensation arrangements with SAC Cardio. Separately, the settlement includes another $15 million from Sutter to resolve self-disclosed conduct principally concerning the physician self-referral law. Hospitals know that a surgeon or proceduralist will often bring them more than $3 million in downstream revenue, and that a family physician will bring the hospital $2 million. Nearly half of all physicians in the country are now employed by hospitals. This is largely fed by downstream revenue. Employed physicians cost the healthcare system significantly more than non-employed physicians. So why do the hospitals keep making these deals and getting into trouble? Hospitals continue to profit by these employed arrangements, but so do the physicians. All the physicians have to do is refer all their patients in-house, and they are financially incentivized to hit certain benchmarks. The five most important federal fraud and abuse laws that apply to physicians are the False Claims Act, the Anti-Kickback Statute, the Physician Self-Referral Law, that's the Stark Law we're talking about, the Exclusion Authorities, and the Civil Monetary Penalties Law. Physicians are constantly being reminded not to violate the Stark Law and related statutes. When Pete Stark designed these laws, he was directly pointing at independent physicians who were making increased profits by self-referral to their own facilities. And now our crime report. 46-year-old Fernando Torres Garcia self-surrendered and was arraigned at the Kern County Superior Court on nearly a dozen felony counts of insurance fraud after allegedly misrepresenting an injury in order to receive undeserved workers' compensation insurance benefits. In 2018, Mr. Garcia reported to his employer that he injured his lower back and hip after he slipped while working in a trench to repair a water line. He was diagnosed with a lumbar strain and was placed on modified duty, which his employer accommodated. He continued to see his doctor as he claimed he was not improving and continued to suffer from pain. Garcia then amended his original workers' compensation claim to include his entire back, right hip, right thigh, right legs, right elbow, both knees, and a cumulative trauma. He had numerous doctor visits during the time and he continuously claimed he was not improving. He was finally referred for an orthopedic evaluation and given a rating of 5% impairment for his lumbar spine. In 2019, Garcia underwent a panel qualified medical evaluation. 
after the evaluator reviewed Garcia's medical reports, some surveillance footage, and Garcia's physical examination and abilities, the PQME determined that Garcia did not meet the requirements for any permanent disability or rateable impairment. It was the PQME's opinion that Garcia misrepresented his complaints during his examination. Garcia's material misrepresentations caused deposition and surveillance expenses of nearly $6,000. Garcia is scheduled to return to court this November. And in regulatory news, some of the sweeping changes just made to the California Superior Court system will apply to depositions in workers' compensation litigation and will permanently allow remote depositions in workers' compensation litigation, even without the consent of all parties. The Superior Court system and the Appeals Board have distinct and separate rules of practice and procedures. Most of the new law will therefore not apply to workers' compensation litigation, but both systems share the discovery statutes. Depositions in workers' compensation are allowed by Labor Code Section 5710, which provides that the deposition of witnesses are to be taken in the manner prescribed by law for like depositions in civil actions in the Superior Court. Governor Newsom just signed Senate Bill 1146, a new law that makes substantial changes to litigation in superior courts. However, since some of these changes pertaining to how depositions are taken in superior courts, Labor Code Section 5710 would make those changes applicable to discovery in workers' compensation as well. Key new provisions of the deposition process specify that a deponent is not required to be physically present with a de- deposition officer when being sworn in at the time of the deposition. And any party or attorney of record may, but is not required to, be physically present at the deposition at the location of the deponent. In essence, these provisions eliminate the requirement that any consent is required to conduct a deposition by remote methods. Although workers' compensation depositions have been conducted remotely since the beginning of the pandemic as a result of temporary workers' compensation rules, the remote deposition process is now a permanent part of the litigation landscape in both civil and workers' compensation proceedings. Senate Bill 1146 was declared an urgency statute, and thus it takes effect immediately. Cal OSHA has cited five grocery stores in Southern California for failing to protect their employees from COVID-19. The retailers were cited for various health and safety violations, including some classified as serious, with proposed penalties of more than $25,000. The grocery stores owned and operated by Cincinnati-based Kroger Company were cited for failing to protect workers from exposure to COVID-19 because they did not update their workplace safety plans to properly address hazards related to the virus. The Food for Less in Los Angeles and Ralph's Grocery Stores in Studio City, Sherman Oaks, and West Hollywood put their workers at risk 
by allowing too many customers in the store, which prevented workers from maintaining at least six feet of physical distance. The Studio City location exposed workers in the cheese department to hazards related to COVID-19 as they did not install physical barriers between employees and customers. Plexiglass or other required barriers were not installed at registers 1 through 8 at the West Hollywood location. Calosha inspectors determined that both the Culver City and West Hollywood locations failed to provide effective training for their employees, including instruction on how the virus is spread, measures to avoid infection, signs and symptoms of infection, and how to safely use cleaners and disinfectants. The Culver City and Sherman Oaks grocery stores failed to report a worker's fatal COVID-19 illness at each location. Kalosha learned of the fatality seven days after the worker's death in Culver City and six days after the fatality in Sherman Oaks. California just adopted a new law to allow the state to develop its own line of generic drugs, a notion designed to address the rising cost of prescription medicines. Earlier this year, Governor Newsom announced a first-in-the-nation plan to lower the cost of prescription drugs by creating CalRx, a state-sponsored generic drug label. Newsom has now signed SB 852, a new law that advances his proposal to leverage California's purchasing power to increase generic drug manufacturing. The new law requires California Health and Human Services Agency to enter into a partnership to produce or distribute generic prescription drugs and at least one form of insulin. SB 852 requires the agency to submit a report to the legislature in 2023 that addresses the feasibility and advantages of directly manufacturing generic prescription drugs and selling generic prescription drugs at a fair price. The law also requires the agency to report to the legislature in 2022 a description of the status of the drugs targeted for manufacture and an analysis of how the agency activities have impacted competition, access, and cost for those drugs. The state has already begun to identify potential targeted medications and develop a strategic plan to promote state-led generic drug purchasing and manufacturing. California is also transitioning all Medi-Cal pharmacy services from managed care to direct state payment in 2021, strengthening California's ability to negotiate better prices with drug manufacturers. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted proposed amendments to the copy service fee schedule to its online forum. Members of the public may now review and comment on the proposals. The proposed updates to the regulations include an increase of the flat fee rate for copy services from $180 to $210, and fees will no longer be provided for records from the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau or the Employment Development Department. Mandatory billing codes will be required, 
including proposed new codes for sales tax and contracted fees. To prevent fraud, each request for records requires a statement from the requesting party that the request was issued in good faith, is not duplicative, and that the records are necessary to the litigation of the claim. The Division of Workers' Compensation has also issued an order updating the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule drug list effective November 1. The update order adopts changes to the MTUS drug list based on the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine practice guidelines, which provide new drug recommendations addressed in the Depressive Disorders Guideline. The updated MTUS drug list version 0.7 and the Administrative Director order can be accessed on the DWCA, DWC MTUS drug formulary webpage. A drug listed as exempt indicates the drug may be prescribed or dispensed without seeking authorization through a prospective review if in accordance with the MTUS. Examples of depressive disorder medications that are now exempt include approximately 29 commonly prescribed brand names such as Elevil, Wellbutrin, Wellbutrin XL, Wellbutrin SR, Pristique, Cymbalta, and Lexapro, to name just a few. The DWC welcomes comment on the new formulary drug list at formulary at dir.ca.gov. And in other industry news, Arthur J. Gallagher disclosed that it was hit with a ransomware attack, prompting the world's fourth largest insurance broker by revenue to take its computer systems offline. The Rolling Meadows, Illinois-based broker said in a securities filing that it is in the process of restarting most business systems after discovering the threat. The incident affected Gallagher Gallagher and Gallagher-Bassett services units. The company promptly took all, all of its global systems offline as a precautionary measure, initiated response protocols, launched an investigation, engaged the services of external cybersecurity and forensics professionals, and implemented its business continuity plans to minimize disruptions to customers. Gallagher is still in the early stages of assessing the incident, which it does not expect to have a material impact on businesses, operations, or financial conditions. The attack highlights increasing risk financial firms face from hackers. Ransomware is a malicious software used to extort payment by blocking a company or individual's access to their data. It is one of the most common types of cyber attacks and has grown in both size and scope in both in recent years. While the frequency of new attacks have slowed by 18% in the first half of 2020, more hackers are finding success with their attacks and are making larger settlement demands. Worsening the trend is the emergence of dangerous new strains of ransomware, such as the Doppel Paymer. 
The average size of ransom demands also varies sharply by the malware strain. Experts say financial firms, such as insurance carriers and brokers, face a double threat. Not only do they write or sell cyber insurance, but they themselves are a popular target of hackers due to the large volume of personal information they handle. For example, Chubb, one of the largest carriers of cyber insurance, as part of a policy package, was hit with a maze ransomware attack in late March. Unlike other malware, Maze infects every computer in its path, and not just an organization's network. A year earlier, Target sued Chubb for $74 million, alleging that the carrier did not properly compensate the retailer after a massive data breach in 2013. At least 29 financial institutions worldwide, including PayPal, were targeted in ransomware attacks this year, according to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>